Good morning, church. My name is Jeremiah. I am the pastor to kids. And uh, so kids, if you're in here, they all just applauded for you. You should be really excited about that. Um, so I get the, the coveted preaching shift of being the last person to preach for the end of the summer for Labor Day weekend. So this face right here that you are seeing in front of you, I am the official marker of the end of your summer vacation. So every time you look at this face, I hope you associate it with summer is over. I have to come back to reality. It's all your fault, Pastor Jeremiah. Um, no, it is an honor to be here this morning. I'm very excited about our message this morning and to get to be in here with what we call on the kids' side of things, big church. Um, so I want to talk to the kids who are in service today. Welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, and I have a little uh, task for you this morning. So when you came in, I hope you were able to grab a bulletin that was set up just for you, a bulletin with some word searches and some coloring and some work you can do on it. But in the middle of that bulletin, there's a blank piece of paper. So that blank piece of paper, what I want you to do with it is I want you to take notes um, during the service today. And specifically the notes I want you to take is I want you to draw a picture. Um, so anything you hear, uh, my daughter's going to come up in a couple minutes and read the passage. Anything that jumps out to you in the passage, draw it. Anything that comes up in the sermon that you're excited about, draw that image. Um, anything that you feel like maybe you're kind of maybe hearing a little bit from God, draw that image. Because drawing is actually a way that we can take notes, but even more so, it's a way that we can pray. It's a way that we can be part of a conversation with God. And if you would share with us in the baskets after service, please drop your image off and we will put those up in your classrooms so you can see your, your, the image that you drew, but you can also see what your friends drew and get a picture of what God might've been saying to us this morning. And as I was practicing that little intro last night, my wife said, why do kids get to have all the fun? So any adults, if you have any paper with you, feel free to draw an image. Our friends online, draw them, email them in, kids at cnbc.org. I want to see whatever it is that you are drawing and whatever it is that God might be speaking to you and through you. I've had profound moments with God through art and through creation, and I would love to see you engage in that as well this morning. Um, with that, I am going to invite my daughter, Momo, to come up, and she's going to read our passage for us. Also, I come from a background in a church tradition where we stand for the uh, reading of God's word, and I love that idea of using our bodies to worship God. So I'd invite you, if you're able, to please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Luke 14, verses 15 to 24 the parable of the great banquet. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for now everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I am on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. 
The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Thank you, Mel. Well, you see where all the charisma is in the family, so hopefully I don't bore you now. Um, a few summers ago, uh, probably about 10 years ago, my wife and I were leading a project in the hilltop of Tacoma. And while we were leading that project, I was biking all around the city. That was kind of my main mode of transportation. And I always had in one ear an earbud in, and I was listening to The Divine Conspiracy by the philosopher Dallas Willard, great Christian theologian, great thinker. And that book really shaped me in a lot of significant ways. And I started thinking about it this week when I was thinking about the great banquet and what I wanted to say this morning. And Dallas Willard has an analogy that he uses in the book that I'm going to borrow and expand upon a little bit. So I invite you to engage your imaginations for a moment. And I want to have you consider that you were actually born on an airplane. And you've lived your entire life on this airplane. So you've never been on the ground. You've never been out of this airplane at all your entire life. It's all you know. So sorry for the cramped accommodations in this imagination. And you trust the pilot. The pilot's in a good job. You've never crashed. Clearly, he knows what he's doing, he or she. Uh, and then they speak over the, over the intercom and say, hey, we just made a radical discovery. We've been flying upside down for decades. Your entire life, we've been upside down. So we've decided to correct our problem. We're going to turn the plane right side up on you. And it's going to just happen right now, and it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And you trust the pilot. The pilot is good. The pilot has never crashed the plane. The plane has been okay. So, you're, so you know in your brain, if the pilot is saying we've been upside down, we've been upside down. And we'll be okay when we go right side up, and it will ultimately be better. Your brain knows this reality. However, as the plane begins to turn over to right side up, while your brain knows the reality that this is good and true, your stomach might start to tell you a different story. Your equilibrium would start to tell you a different story. You would find yourself in a situation of trusting a pilot for good information, yet your entire body and senses is telling you this is all very, very wrong. And likely the... Uh, little bag in front of you would also be telling you that story. <laughs> this is what I think is a great picture of what theologians call Jesus's upside-down kingdom, or the great reversal. That we have been living our entire lives in a world that is essentially upside-down. That is upside-down to the purposes of God, that is upside-down to the realities of God's creation, upside-down to what God intended us to be. And Jesus shows up on the scene, and he begins to right-side-up our world. And for some people, this feels like great news. They've always sensed there's something wrong with this plane. For others, 
the cabin pressure becomes an issue for them. A belief that this is wrong, this is pushing too hard against me, comes and the discomfort is too great and they want to reject what is happening. So I think as we lean into uh, the great banquet, what we're really leaning into is a picture of what happens when God shows up and begins to right side up the kingdom, right side up our world, and what do we feel internally as that is happening to us. Now, I should also note that the upside down kingdom and uh, by virtue, the great banquet is not unique. It is actually a continuation of a series of interactions Jesus is having in Luke's gospel. Commentators call this table fellowship in Luke's gospel. And the great banquet was actually the fourth time that Jesus has come to a table in Luke's gospel. So I'm gonna give you a quick overview of the first three times Jesus comes to a table, what happens there, and how that helps inform the great banquet. So our first table time in Luke's gospel is with Matthew, the tax collector. And many of you may have heard a little bit about tax collectors before. They were Jewish citizens that collected taxes on behalf of the oppressive government of Rome. So they were obviously really well-liked with their people. (laughs) No, they were completely despised, the worst of the worst. And Jesus comes and he invites Matthew straight from his tax collecting booth to come follow him. And if you ever read that passage, you immediately assume when Jesus says, come follow me, and Matthew says yes, that they're going to go gallivanting into the hills preaching the gospel. It just makes narrative sense. Yet that isn't what happens. The first step for Matthew following Jesus is to throw a party in his own home for Jesus with what the text describes as tax collectors and sinners, a catch-all for everyone who wasn't accepted in society. And it's at that meal where Jesus seems perfectly relaxed and the tax collectors and sinners seem perfectly relaxed that Jesus' other disciples seem really, really nervous. And the Pharisees come in in that moment and say, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus speaks to that and says, no, no, no. It's not people who believe that they are healthy that need a doctor. It's people who acknowledge that they are sick, that come and experience the great physician, who experience healing, who experience the doctor. So we jump to the next table fellowship scene. This time it's actually in the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And Simon has put out a great meal for Jesus. Very impressive. Everything's clean, everything's tasty. It's a great show of a meal. But it is interrupted, as so many of Jesus' meals are. It's interrupted by a woman that the text, in somewhat dispute, identifies as a sinful woman. And she comes in with an expensive and, I would imagine, fragrant jar of perfume. She smashes it, pours it on Jesus' feet, and proceeds to weep on Jesus' feet commingled tears and perfume and drying it with her hair. And this scene is awkward and beautiful. So many of Jesus' best stories are both awkward and beautiful. And everyone's very uncomfortable. And Simon kind of mutters to himself, if he knew who was touching him, he wouldn't allow this to happen. And Jesus leaps to defense of this woman and says, actually, Simon, what you don't understand is this. The ability to love is tied to the knowledge of which we are forgiven. Those who've been forgiven much 
have great capacity for love. And those who, are not, who have not experienced forgiveness have a diminished capacity to love and thus ties forgiveness and love together. And then we get to our third table time. And I'm going to acknowledge at the front, this third table time is the most uncomfortable of all of them. Jesus, once again, is at the table of a Pharisee, and they challenge him about ritual cleaning laws. Basically, why are you and your disciples not washing your hands properly before the meal? And Jesus uh, proceeds to list seven woes to describe the Pharisees, um, because this is a very comfortable dinner party. He rebukes them for their desire to look good and eat well and hold places of honor in opposition to serving others, practicing justice, or really having any discernible practices of love. He ends the meal, and this is really the kicker, by telling these religious elites that if they had been alive in the time of the prophets, they would have killed the very prophets they now celebrate. So that meal ends in a very awkward place. And I would imagine reading that I would assume that this would be the end of his table fellowship time with the Pharisees. That's kind of a mic drop when you say to them, hey, here's seven woes, and by the way, you would have killed your heroes if you were alive with them. Yet when we come into our story today, Jesus is once again at the table with the Pharisees, thus showing us that Jesus actually never gives up on anybody. Amen. Amen. So all these times of table fellowship have been disorienting invitations to consider radically different ways to live. Jesus is foregoing standard practices of class and cleanliness. Jesus has prioritized the wrong people while inviting the right people to lay down their positions of honor and become the servants of all. And there's a passage from Isaiah that Jesus is highlighting that was originally in Luke in Mary's song. And it's Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five. And it goes like this. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We see in table fellowship the ways that Jesus is taking the low places, the lowly people, and bringing them up to level ground. And we see where Jesus is inviting the elite and the powerful to step down a couple notches and meet them in the middle and create a pathway that all can make their way to God by calling people to humility and raising up the dignity of others, Jesus is making a pathway to God. And, that's how we, and that is the context in which we come to the great banquet. We come to the great banquet, and I believe that we are seeing here, as we're seeing Jesus, as he does so often in his parables, providing the context of why. Jesus acts in these ways that are so countercultural and so different and push against us. He acts in these ways that bring the cabin pressure of the plamian right side up, and we don't know which way is up and which way is down, and we're so disoriented. And then Jesus, in his grace, comes to us with a story, a story that describes what is happening, a story that gives context to what is happening, a story that gives clarity 
to what is happening. And he invites us to enter into his story. So may we enter in to the story of the great banquet again this morning. So in order to enter into the story of the great banquet, we got to get a picture of this banquet real quick. So I tried to imagine what would a great banquet look like to me that I'd be very, very excited to attend. So I immediately started talking about the food, right? The first time I was up here, I asked you guys to give me Euro, Euro recommendations. Clearly I'm wired towards loving a good meal. So this great banquet is right in my wheelhouse. Table fellowship is my version of church. So I'm picturing this banquet and man, the wings are spicy. Like they're gonna hurt spicy wings. The gyros are slathered in tzatziki sauce. And I would describe the desserts to you right now, but it's early and we don't need to be thinking about carbs this early in the morning, right? This is a place of abundance and hospitality. This is a place of music and dancing and celebration. Imagine the greatest wedding reception you've ever attended. The one you never wanna leave that goes late into the night. It's that kind of a banquet. For the kids here, imagine the best birthday party you've ever come to. You want pony rides? Baby, we got pony rides at this banquet. That's for the kids and the grown-ups, actually. This is a culmination of years of planning and care. It is a demonstration of the willingness to go above and beyond in providing hospitality and welcome and joy and celebration for other people. This is the best party ever. So the servant has what should seem like an easy job. When you have a banging party and you have an RSVP list, it should be very easy to go and tell people, hey, it's ready to go. So he goes out to do this, and what does the text tell us? Everybody says no. Everybody says they can't make it. And for us, this is shocking because we've all thrown parties where a lot of people don't come. Trust me, I've been in full-time ministry. I've thrown a lot of parties where a lot of people who RSVP don't show up. This is even worse in the first century, ancient Near East. Ancient Near East hospitality codes are very strong. They bind the society together. And one of the rules of the ancient Near East hospitality codes is that to not come to a celebration that you have said yes to coming to is to bring a great dishonor on the host. Essentially, it is an act of shame to the host of the party. This is not our, our context where when we RSVP on Facebook, it's like a 50% chance we're gonna show up. When you say you're gonna come, to not come is an intentional act of shaming the host of the party. And all of these people bring tremendous, tremendous shame on the host. So I think we need to look at the nature of these excuses. What are the reasons that these people are so willing to shame the host of this party? So let's look at the excuses one by one. The first excuse is to purchase a field. And Throughout human history, land has always equaled power and influence. Those who own land have power, have authority. They are considered to be important. They are considered to have voice. One of the realities that we have to face even with our own nation's history is for the first several generations, the only people who could vote 
were white male landowners. Land has equal power and influence in almost every culture at any moment in human history. So what is being said in this excuse? What is being said in this excuse is, I'm sorry, I can't attend the banquet. I have been given the opportunity to become a more influential person. I have been given the opportunity to gain influence and authority, and that takes precedence over the banquet. Let's get into the second excuse. Second excuse is I have just purchased five oxen and must try them out. So I got to do some oxen research this week, which I think I'm from Idaho. I know more about agriculture, but I really, really don't. Five oxen is enough to work 100 acres of land. So you'd only buy five oxen if you had 100 acres of land to use this. The ancient, the uh, average size of a far, piece of farmland in the ancient Near East was between two and three acres. So what is being communicated here with the five oxen is, I've just purchased five oxen and I'm about to make bank. These five oxen mean I'm about to significantly increase my profits. I'm about to significantly increase my ability to gain wealth. So what is being communicated? I'm sorry, I cannot attend your party because my ability to increase my own personal wealth has just increased fivefold. Please excuse me. And then we have our third excuse. I just got married. I can't come to the party. I cannot come to the banquet. Their relationship has taken precedence over the banquet. The pursuit of happiness and love in another person has become more important than the participation of the banquet, has become more important than honoring the master. Now, if it seems like I have more sympathy for this third excuse than the first two, you are correct. It's not because it's less egregious, it's because it's my primary excuse. I'm a relationally wired person. I love to be loved. I love to be in relationship with other people. I will always be the guy who's 10 minutes late because I'm going long with the person I'm meeting with right now. I love relationships. They are, they are the, what I'm wired to do. But when it's out of balance with relationship with God, it can become my primary mode of identity. In the same way that influence can become our primary mode of identity, in the same way that money can be our primary mode of identity, relationships can very, very easily become my primary mode of identity, which is the truth of all of these excuses. Influence, money, and relationships are far from inherently bad. They actually all have kingdom purposes and uses. I like to think the way I'm relationally wired is used by God on a fairly regular basis. However, as good as they are, and as good as they are in the context of the kingdom of God, money, influence, and relationships all make terrible masters. They are terrible masters of our lives. They want to weasel into us and become our priority and purpose. And when they do, they squeeze out of us place and priority to participate in the banquet of God. They are all addictive and they long to take priority over us if they go unchecked. I could easily share about seasons in my own life 
where all three of these things have scraped to dominate my work and my imagination. And I would imagine most of us can identify times where one of these three categories has tried to take over priority in our lives. So these excuses are made and we come back to the master. And the text tells us the master is angry. And if you're someone listening in the first century, you might assume the master is going to focus his anger on the servant. The servant failed in his task to bring these people in, right? And it's so much easier to blame someone who works for you than to blame your rich buddies. But the master instead puts the blame where it is, on the excuses that were made, on the reprioritization that was made. So the master should, at this point, by ancient Near East codes, just cancel the party. Hey, they didn't show up. I'm mad at you, servant. I'm throwing off the party. I'm going to have a tantrum about the fact no one wanted my food, so no one's going to eat my food. But the master doesn't. The master instructs his servant to go out and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, to go out to the highways outside of the city where people are not following cleanliness laws at all and say, bring all these people in. And we don't have to guess why, because the text tells us exactly why the master does this. He does this because he wants his table to be full. The master longs for a full table. So he sends his servant out to go and invite, to bring others in. And in doing so, he flips the standard rules of hospitality, the standard rules of who's allowed. Before we get to the great banquet, Jesus is eating with the Pharisees. And he is appalled at the fact they continue to fight over who should have the seats of honor at the table, who gets to sit at the head of the table, who gets to sit next to the coolest person, who gets to have the most influence. Nobody wants to sit at the end of the table because that's where the kids are supposed to sit. We all know at Thanksgiving, you don't want to sit there. Like Jesus just watching all the ways that they are fighting for position and power. And so Jesus tells this story in response. He says, all right, all of you who won't show up because you have other things going on, I'm going to fill my table instead with those who've never been invited by your community. I'm going to fill my table instead by those who you would squeeze out of being here. So he sends the servant to go and bring in, bring in those who've never been invited, those who've never tasted a banquet like this before. Bring in those who've never been given a pony ride before. This is their day. And then we get to another troubling part of the passage for me. Because I expect at this moment, the servant's going to go out, make a couple announcements, send some texts. Hey, banquet, come on. Throw some flyers up and it's going to be full. But that isn't what the text says, is it? The text tells us the servant has to bring in other people. He has to physically walk them to the gates. That he has to compel others to come. If the banquet is so good, why does the servant's job seem to be so complicated and so hard? Well, that's actually pretty simple. Again, we have to go back to ancient Near East hospitality codes. These hospitality codes indicate that you cannot say yes to an invitation that you are not able to reciprocate back to somebody else. So if Nick has me over to his house and serves me some awesome ramen, and we have a great game of Bananagrams afterwards, as I'm driving home, I have to already start thinking, all right, man, that ramen was really good. I can't do, I can't do his ramen, but I make a killer sourdough pizza. 
So I'll have him over, sourdough pizza. We're gonna dust off my original copy of Catan. It's gonna be great. I can match his hospitality. Well, this is an incredibly wealthy master who has a party that's been years in planning. There is no way the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame in a society that says you've been cursed by God, you have to be on the outskirts, will ever be able to repay the master. So when the servant comes and says, hey, come to the party, they're like, what's the catch? Because the catch is going to be that you're going to bury me in social debt. The catch is going to be that I'm going to be shamed once I arrive there, that I'm going to be a charity case, that I'm going to be treated differently. So the servant doesn't just get to go and tell people, hey, it's a cool party, you you might want to show up. The servant has to go and argue for the character of the master. The servant has to go and say, this master isn't like anyone else you know. This master is good. This master is fair. This master longs for you to take a seat of honor at his table. This master longs for you to experience all of the love he has for you, all of the hospitality he has for you. Trust me, these wings are really good and they are for you. Chicken wings, that's right, boy. They don't, the the servant doesn't just get to say, hey, you should show up, it's pretty dope. The servant has to enter into people's stories. He has to enter into the places that they've experienced bad hospitality, the places they've been squeezed out. He has to enter into their mistrust and their misgivings and speak of the character of a master who is fundamentally different. And that is not a short task. That is not an easy task. But oh boy, is it a good task. It is a really, really good task. And I think in order for the servant to enter into that task, he has to believe two things and do two things. One, he has to believe without reservation that the master is as good as the master is appearing to be. He has to trust the character of the master so much that he's willing to put his own reputation on the line for this master and for that master's goodness. And the second thing, that servant has to be willing to cross boundaries that no one else will cross. He has to be willing to step across lines that no one else will step across. He has to be full of belief in how good the master is, and he has to be full of courage to step over the line. So I try to think of a story that I could share that would highlight this. I think personal stories help us find grit and traction with the Bible, right? And I actually struggled a lot. But I thought of a story of when I was a campus staff worker with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the University of Idaho. And that fall, my wife and I had done an event where we allowed people to come and ask any questions they had about the Bible and romantic relationships. Um, And yes, those got a little awkward at times. But one student who came, uh, she was not a Christian and had had a pretty bad background with the church. But she was intrigued by some of our answers and for the frankness of the community. So she started coming to Bible study. And as she would come to Bible study, she started falling more intrigued in Jesus, more intrigued by the way Jesus was, his actions, his attitude, his heart. And her and I would meet week after week after week, and I would try and answer her questions, and I would try and speak about how good Jesus was, but she had this problem. 
what I was saying Jesus was like and her lived experience of some places of community just didn't line up. And she couldn't take the step of trust. And man, I was a vocational Christian. I threw all my best arguments, all my, all my winsome attitude, all my heart's belief at her, and she just couldn't make that final decision. So exasperated, not full of faith. I want this to be very clear. Not full of faith whatsoever. Just not sure what else to do. I said, all right, let's just pray that God would show up to you in your life. I got nothing else to tell you. I literally have no other stories about Jesus. You have sapped me. Like there's no more juice in this orange. We're just gonna pray that Jesus will show up to you and we're just gonna leave it at that. So we pray. And that night she goes back to her dorm room. And while she's she's getting ready to fall asleep, she hears someone call her name in the hall. So she gets up, she goes to the hall, she looks around, she can't find anybody. She goes back to her bed. She hears someone call her name again. So she gets up, she goes to the hall, she looks around, she can't find anybody. Searches the bathroom this time, right? Like where are, who is saying this? Doesn't hear anything, comes back down, lays down. Here's her name called to her a third time. And she's like, I think this might be God. (laughs) So next morning I get a message. We have to hang out, we have to hang out. So I meet with her and she tells me the story. And as she told me the story, I'm freaking out. I'm like, I think God spoke to you. She's like, I think God spoke to me. And I'm like, you literally had the experience of Samuel in the Bible. This is like in the Bible. Like you just had a Bible thing happen to you. She's like, I had a Bible thing happen to me. This is crazy. I'm like, you should be a Christian now. She's like, I should totally be a Christian now. So we pray, (laughs) she becomes a Christian. She comes to the table, right? She comes and experiences the feast of God. And it strikes me as I think about that story again this week in the context of this passage. I got the privilege of being the servant to her, but I couldn't speak to all of her fears. I couldn't speak to all of her insecurities. I couldn't speak to all of her experience. All I could do was walk her to the gate and trust that the master loved her enough to walk outside of the gate, grab her by the arm and walk her inside. And he did. That'll change you. That'll change you. When you're able to walk someone to the gate and you watch God walk to them, grab them by the arm and walk arm in arm with them and say, there's always been a spot for you at this table. There's the placard with your name on it. That will change you. It is so, so good. So that's some invitations for us today. Um, I love a good application. It comes from years of campus ministry. My first invitation for us is I wanna speak, and I realize this can be a little uncomfortable. I wanna speak to those who are prone to make, maybe you recognize that you have been prone to make some excuses about coming to God's table. And I wanna be very clear here. I do not equate the table with attendance at church. Attendance at church is a really good dish at the table. It might even be the main course for a lot of us at the table, but it's sitting next to like a daily prayer life as a dish. And it's sitting next to serving those around you as a dish. And it's sitting next to confessing to a close friend the ways that you're falling short as a dish. And it's sitting next to the discipline of celebrating God's goodness as a dish. Like it's sitting at a lot of dishes at a very beautiful banquet table. 
And as we are honest with ourselves, and we find either influence, our money, our relationships, or something else is trying to become the master of our lives, and it is squeezing out space and time and energy and passion for the table of God, my invitation to you this morning is very simple. Remember where real food and real drink comes from. Remember how good it is to banquet with the Lord, to let your heart be full of all that God has for you. Remember how good it is to prioritize feasting on the goodness of God. Remember that anything else is a cruel master that will suck you dry, but the master of this banquet will fill you up. Come back to the banquet, please. Come back to the banquet, please. Second group I want to talk to is those of you who identify with the outsiders in this passage, who identify with the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, those on the highways, those who for whatever reason have been pushed aside. If you are here or you are online this morning and you feel like, yes, I'm intrigued by the banquet. Yes, I love to come and smell the banquet because it smells so good but I'm just not sure I belong there. Everyone else seems to know what you're supposed to do or how you're supposed to act in that space. Everyone else seems to identify how they fit in that space. Everyone else seems like they've just been in that space for a really long time and I'm not sure I'm invited. Let me be the servant this morning. Give me the honor of being the servant to you this morning. You are welcome at this table. This table was set for you. This table was made for you. The food was cooked for you. You have been on the guest list of this table before time even began. Come to the table, please. Come and feast on the goodness of God. And I have an invitation for all of us, for every single one of us. Do not deprive your life of the joy of becoming the servant in this story. Do not deprive yourself of the joy of being the servant. If you have tasted the goodness of the table, if you have tasted the goodness of God, if you have come to trust the master, is that kind of host? Is that kind of hospitality? Is that dude? If you have come to believe that, then my invitation to you is very, very simple. Give that away to other people. Invite, bring, compel love other people, sit in their stories, speak of the goodness of the master, walk them to the front gates and trust that the master will come out and meet them and say, I have been waiting for you. Participate in the good invitation of the master to come to the good table of God, to feast on all that God has for us. That is invitation for every single one of us. And I just want to do something real quick. I want you to close your eyes. And just ask God quietly in your hearts, is there somebody that you are inviting me to invite? Is there a beloved member of your guest list that I have been given the privilege of getting to play a part in them coming to this table? Thank you, God, for these images. May we faithfully invite. May we faithfully invite. 
So we started this morning talking about the plane, the shifting of the pressures on us, the shifting of the cabin pressure. And there is no place the upside, but really right side down kingdom is most evident than at the communion table. At the communion table, at the table of our king, the culmination of all these table stories, Jesus does something very strange. Kings have always asked others to die for them, but our king, the king of this right-side-up kingdom, explains how he will die for us and how his death will allow us to feast at God's table forever. So I can think of nothing more appropriate this morning as we reflect on table fellowship, as we reflect on the banquet, than to feast at the table the Lord has prepared for us, to feast at the communion table. So I'm gonna go ahead and invite you to come to these tables or around the room if you can. If you cannot come to the table, please raise your hand. We'll make sure the elements come to you. To grab the communion elements and bring them back, we're gonna worship while holding our elements. And then I'm gonna come back up and lead us in the eating of God's supper. So please come to the table of the Lord.